1: Hello and welcome to The Chat Returns, a mini-series of conversations about our relationships with the world's greatest animation studio, Studio Ghibli. I'm Michael Leder and I've seen the lot of them. And I'm Jake Cunningham and I'm still recovering from watching one of them. So join us on our quest into the glorious world of Ghibli. Jake, welcome back to The Chat Returns. Uh, you're still recovering from one of the films you say
0: yeah although i think it was it our second maybe third episode of this entire podcast um but yeah grave of the fireflies it it certainly sticks with you uh i may have told this story in the podcast before but i sat down to watch it uh with my girlfriend uh who had not seen it before uh a few months ago this was right in the midst of lockdown as well uh which is already an emotionally vulnerable time um And it was a Sunday afternoon and she just said, I fancy a bit of a weepy, you know, and I think to certain audiences that suggests a different type of film. Maybe a maybe a film directed by Joe Wright uh, in the mid 2000s or something, Uh, you know, that kind of Sunday afternoon ITV type weepy, uh, maybe not uh, Grave of the Fireflies, (laughs) which is uh, maybe doing it a disservice to even put it in the weepy category. But uh, yes, she she watched that uh, with me. She said that she doesn't think she's seen anything as sad.
1: If that was the response from you and, and your girlfriend after one viewing, I mean, how many times has this guy had to watch Grey the Fireflies? This is Alex, do Dr. Witz who's known to our listeners because he's been on the podcast a couple of times before. He is an animation critic for places like Sight and Sound, Cartoon Brew, and now he's got a book out about Grey for the Fireflies for the BFI Film Classics imprint. It's an absolutely essential read, but we'll find out as part of the interview just how many times he had to watch *Grave of the Fireflies and whether he is now a husk inside. <laughs>
0: <laughs> and, uh, excitingly, Alex is not the only person out there who spent a uh, lockdown and a bit before writing a book all about Ghibli.
1: No, we did that too, although for our purposes, we didn't have to watch Grey the Fly of as many times, but you did have to re-watch all, of, uh, all the films in the process of writing the Ghibliotech book. It's a an adaptation of the podcast into book form. We go film by film from Naushka of The Valley of the Wind all the way to *Eerwig and the Witch uh, chapter by chapter offering a little bit of the contextual history and production background that I like to nerd out on, followed by Jake diving into your film fan review. Uh,
0: It was a really
1: fun process, wasn't it, Jake?
0: Yeah, yeah, it was it was really lovely to do and to kind of put down on the page uh, some of these thoughts and things we've been talking about for so many years now. um, And it feels like we can't take them back now. Uh, I'm glad that I did that uh, key rewatch of Princess Mononoke and can confirm to the listeners uh, that it is in fact a good film. And uh, that is the angle that I take in my review. (laughs) But, you know, any Howl's Moving Castle fans out there, you can skip that chapter.
1: Yes. And uh, even though we've used the name as a pun for this mini series, any fans of The Cat Returns may uh, have to skip that chapter as well, I'm sure. (laughs) But it was really fun from my point of view. You know, we go back to 2018. Uh, When we did many of the first episodes of the series, some of the really big films like Mononoke, Spirited Away, My Neighbor Totoro, being able to go back and hit the books, do some extra research and write out that story about how those films came to be was a real trip for me. Not least because there are now new books like Alex's. Coming out that go deeper in terms of English language writing about Ghibli. Alex's book is the first book in English, not just on *Grave of the Fireflies, but I think the first book in English solely about Isao Takahata's work
0: as well. So you can pick up Alex's book now. It's already out. Make sure you go and buy it. Uh, And the Ghibliotech book is going to be available from early September in the UK. You can pre-order it now. uh, And it's out in early October if you're in the US. And uh, in some exciting news, we noticed getting translated into a a few other languages as well. Uh, We saw uh, the Spanish front cover the other day, which was very exciting.
1: Particularly exciting that they took the pun at the heart of Ghibliotech. Um, and translated into Spanish. So it's called the the Giblioteca, which uh, is amazing. Amazing. It'll be really fun to see what the other international editions do with that title. Um, Although I'm sure between Ghibliotec and Giblioteca that actually covers
0: most of the Western European and Southern European languages. (laughs) We've kind of warbled along here before we got to Alex's interview quite enough. Um, But if you want to hear even more chat uh, from us, then make sure you head over to Apple Podcasts uh, because we have now got a bonus subscription and new podcast available exclusively to Apple paid subscribers. Uh, So if you want to support the podcast, you can throw us some money. Uh, You'll get bonus episodes uh, where we are kind of exploring all the things that we love doing when we're not watching the films of Studio Ghibli. Uh, There are already some episodes out there where we're talking about video games. Uh, Michael You've just finished playing, what was it again? Titanfall 2, a game from a few years ago that I think really didn't get the um, acclaim and
1: attention that it really did, because it's a fantastic game. But you can hear me talking about all that. And what what did you talk about, Jake, on, on that episode?
0: Uh, I was talking about the Uncharted games, um, which were sold to me as, do you want to play Indiana Jones video games? Of course I do. Now I've played all of Uncharted 4. I've bought Uncharted 1, 2, and 3, and I've bought the Uncharted 4 expansion. So I'm in on Uncharted and uh, we also did an episode all about manga. I just recently finished uh, the Naushka manga and loved going through that. And Michael and Steph also brought along some of their recent reads too. Uh, so head over to Apple Podcasts to listen to all of those conversations, as well as getting early releases of our main feed. You'll get those a few days early and you'll get them without any of the adverts as well. So lots of exciting stuff happening over there. And that must be enough chat now. Uh, I'm sure we can head over to Alex. Uh, who can tell us all about what it's like when you need to watch Grave of the Fireflies 30 times and come out the other side without your brain turning to mush.
1: Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365 day returns on your next order. com slash style. Alex, it's such a pleasure to have you on the podcast. You've been on in the past in a live setting. I also remember you sent us a really nice little audio missive. At the start of the first lockdown when you just turned 30, I think, which is really sweet, but it's so good to have you on properly. Welcome to the podcast. I suppose my first question, which is a question we often ask our guests on this is what is your Ghibli origin story? What was your first experience and taste of Stuart Ghibli and their
2: work? Yeah, thanks for having me on again, guys. Um, I feel like I'm your war correspondent now, because the last time it was The Wind Rises. (laughs) Now it's (laughs) the other depressing one. So uh, I started watching Ghibli films in the 90s um, when I was a child. And uh, this was before Spirited Away and even before Princess Mononoke. And so before the whole Ghibli catalogue really had distribution over here, my family had pirated copies. Sorry, Ghibli, if you're listening to this. Um, <laughs> we we got them through a cousin of mine in France, which was ahead of the curve in discovering Ghibli. They they had the films before we did. And so I had some connections through my cousins who found some borrowed DVDs. <laughs> we had the box set, really kind of low-quality image, uh, really dodgily subtitled. I think it had been subtitled via... Chinese into English. And so there was like two layers of translation and the subtitles didn't make much sense. We also had a Fox dub of Totoro, which was a legitimate release. I think. I watched some of them religiously, Totoro being one of them, Whisper of the Heart being another Kiki. The ones that were kind of more appropriate for my age, four or five, six years old. Not great for the fireflies. Um <laughs> we'll come on to that. And I loved them. And Totoro, I think, was like paradoxically even though it's kind of more realistic in many ways less purely magical than something like Nausicaä or Mononoke okay, it was to me it was the most magical of all because it presented a vision of what seemed to be a real world like rural Japan that was completely different to North London which is what I knew and so Totoro in particular really mesmerized me and uh, made me want to go to Japan and with time it would kind of be one of the main and inspirations for me going to study Japanese at university and and in Japan. So, yeah, I've been watching them ever since then, really. Like I've mentioned elsewhere, um, my father, Michael, uh, eventually directed a film for Studio Ghibli, uh, The Red Turtle. But at this point in the 90s, there was no talk of that whatsoever. He was just a fan of their work, like I was. And um, we didn't personally, he didn't personally know anyone at Studio Ghibli. But that came later in kind of mid two thousands and so on. So they've always been with me, yeah. And I've been writing um about them uh, for as long as I've been writing about film for the past six or seven years. Um and that's kind of culminated in uh, this this book on Grave of the Fireflies.
0: Yeah, I, I like that you've kind of exclusively mentioned Miyazaki films or Mi- Miyazaki related films yeah. there. Um but that is maybe not, not... The main guy that we're going to be getting into today so that that was your Ghibli discovery, where did Takahata come into this and where you figured out that uh, he was a guy that you wanted to be spending probably more time with than than most people ever would dream of?
2: Yeah so when I was a child did I watch any, I might have watched only yesterday but honestly I can't remember, my name is the Amadeus and uh, Kaguya hadn't been made yet his pre-Ghibli stuff was kind of unknown in the west and Grave of the Fireflies I don't believe I watched it when I was a child. I don't know if it's even on the box that we had. Uh, the, uh, the first memory I have of watching it was when I was 14, when I went to Japan with my family. We went on a holiday. And we visited a museum in Osaka, which I can't remember the name of it, but it basically focused on the plight of minorities in Japan, um, ethnic minorities, also the descendants of what used to be the untouchable caste in the feudal times. And this is quite a, well, it's quite unusual, let's say, for an institution in Japan to really be focused, devoted to that issue. So it's an interesting museum. And as it happened, they had a cinema attached, like a mini kind of screening room, and they were playing Grave of the Fireflies. And we went in and saw it. I think we were the only people in that screening room. It was a dark room. I was not prepared for it. (laughs) Um, It it clashed with, um, I, I think I understood it was a Ghibli film, but it clashed with everything I knew about Ghibli. And also with everything I'd seen in Japan, because we'd followed a pretty standard tourist trail where you see, you know, like beautiful temples and shrines and kind of crazy neon Tokyo Shibuya downtown. But you don't really dwell on the fact that, you know, 60 years ago, there was a war here and all these cities were incinerated. So it was a bit of history I I had no knowledge of and... I think that would probably be true for many people here watching that film. It's, it's. We don't talk about the Japanese experience of war anywhere near as much as we talk about the Nazis or you know um, other facets of Second World War. So that was my introduction to Grave of the Fireflies, and then I became kind of obsessed with it. I, I, I remember actually watching, making people watch it on my birthday. Um, <laughs> I kind of lost. I, I was more into the film than I was aware of what a birthday should be and so like it must have been the birthday after that when i was still 14 or 15 and um we just were like a bunch of us were just like at home with no plans and we're just like let's watch a film and i put that on and then at the end of it everyone was like why the hell did we watch that and um yeah all i had in response was it's a great film (laughs) um but I, i watched it over and over again and then took a long break from watching it until the time where i started planning a book about it yeah so I had a kind of 10 year gap where I didn't watch it at all I think
1: that's so great that really takes me back to being a teenager and those shared viewing experiences where maybe this wasn't the impulse behind it you say that you you thought it was a great film and you weren't thinking of the experience of putting your friends through it but similar films around that age for me like threads where you'd be presenting it to people just wanting to see their reaction yeah Uh, you knew it was a great film like come and see as well the Russian film uh, where it's almost a, a, an endurance test, and the the fun of that something that as an adult it's quite hard to to recreate. Although Grave of the Fireflies is often mentioned by you know, many friends and colleagues and listeners who uh, who say it's one that you you don't want to stumble into a film like that. You you want to be told up front you are going to have a profound emotional experience watching it. So so after that ten year break, when you returned to it, why did you return to it, and what made you think? this is worthy of this appraisal as a BFI film classic? Um, it
2: may not have been a 10-year break, but it was a long break. Um, yeah. And the fact that, in fact, the fact that I had taken a break from it and was still often thinking about it told me that there was really something here. Um, there was, I had a personal reaction, a strong personal reaction to the film. It had really played on my mind ever since I'd first seen it, and I think that's the first condition you need to fill in order to write a book about something or a BFI film classic about something. You need to like it or at least have a strong reaction to it. So I knew I had that. And then the impetus for writing a book about it actually came when I was in Japan again, much later. I spotted in a bookshop a little book um, about the film. And this book was part of a series that has been published kind of under the Ghibli brand. It's a critical anthology. So each book um, collects about, I don't know, two dozen essays, interviews, personal testimonies from the staff of one Ghibli film. And so it acts as a kind of like officially sanctioned, I guess, yeah, history slash critical uh, evaluation of that film. And I saw the Grave of the Fireflies one and started flicking through it and found that at the beginning of these books, there's always an official history written by someone at Studio Ghibli of the production of that film. And then that's followed by... uh, Reflections by Toshio Suzuki, um, the longtime producer at Ghibli, of the production of that film, which kind of um, enhances the official history bit. And I was reading that and realizing that the backstory to Growth of the Fireflies was kind of bonkers, really interesting and shed a lot of light on the people involved in it and how they worked, and was a story worth telling in itself. So I knew that that could already be an element of the book. And that got me thinking more about the film and I I rewatched it. And eventually I thought, you know, the the film in and of itself has already got so much to talk about and it's such a well-known film and yet so little discussed in detail in the English language uh, that it warrants a more in-depth study. And then I had an agenda on top of all that, which was to get a bit more animation into the BFI Film Classic series because I find that uh, it's been a little neglected in the past. They've only got, they only had Four um, animated titles in the collection before my books, so and I've got five, and that's out of hundreds. So yeah, I had all these kind of different um, motivations, and I pitched the book based on that.
1: I think your book now tips the scales, so there are now more BFI film classics about animation than there are about Hitchcock films. Really? So <laughs> finally, <laughs> <laughs> progress. <laughs>
2: <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, to, to be fair to the editors, they uh have kind of relaunched this series with a brief to look beyond the established canon or to try and reimagine what a canon is or, you know, however you want to put it and um, be more diverse in all kinds of ways. And I think, I hope animation, more animation is one um, strand of that. And I know they've already commissioned more on other animated films already. So yeah, that might change.
1: It's so interesting that you that you talk about this sense of, you know, picking up the the Ghibli textbook in Japan, and this whole other story behind the film is is, you know, is is there before your eyes, and it's underreported in the West because of all these varying factors. But also, what I find really illuminating about your book is that you take to task a little bit this sense that *Grave of the Fireflies* is this day ruining, evening ruining, weepy that is a classic because of its emotional affect. Whereas there's so much more going on in the film. But then also, it didn't just get presented to us whole cloth as this masterpiece. It's actually a very problematic production. It actually ruined Takahata's reputation at the time as well. It opens something up to to me and something that Jake and I don't speak Japanese. We can't read Japanese, so we we're very aware of the limits of our access and research. However, it's been a goal for us all the way through to sort shine a light on some of these stories that, because Ghibli is seen as this monolithic thing often represented by Miyazaki and we don't question or criticize or read against many of these narratives so it's really illuminating to see that in your book and i, I it makes me think of in that period between you being 14 watching this film and having the emotional experience and then re-visiting it again as somebody who'd been to japan learned japanese learn japanese history culture become a film critic animation expert you're bringing all this extra insight to the film and i wonder do you have an opinion now on this sort of world appraisal of ghibli are we looking at it through just a keyhole and we need to widen that and look at things more broadly
2: i don't know about keyhole i think ghibli is like pretty well studied as anime goes outside japan oh, i should say really in the english language because some other territories notably france have been conducting a lot of research into this whole world for a long time and in many ways well I'm probably definitely ahead of the English um, academia in that respect but um, yeah Vojibia's been relatively well studied I mean it's got a higher profile than any other anime studio but anime as a whole uh, it's still early days Um, it's only probably been seen as a legitimate area of study in in the academy since the 90s uh, or even the 90s and it's a huge field with you know half a century or a century of history, depending on how you define anime. Added to that is the fact that I think, yeah, Japanese is probably less, well, definitely less spoken um, and read than many European languages. So that adds a barrier. These Ghibli anthology books I was talking about are quite new. They haven't been around for decades. They've actually been the latest ones only got published a few years ago. It's maybe unsurprising that they haven't got that much attention it's it's actually quite a new initiative and it's part of this phase that ghibli has entered now where it's kind of consolidating its legacy in a way On the popular side you've got the theme park opening in a couple of years or next year and um presenting all the the best or most salient bits of the ghibli brand to the public and then on the more kind of like yeah scholarly side you've got these anthologies and, and many other books like them which are being written or edited or sanctioned by Toshio Suzuki and his colleagues at the studio. So yeah, I think there's still a trove of, of stuff to hear. I mean, what, what I found interesting about these uh, histories, including one about Grave of the Fireflies, is that they're very candid and humorous and breezy and they're sort of kind of bickering. You can't really picture Pixar putting something like this out, you know, because in Hollywood studios they're much more guarded and uh, they control their image uh, with a lot, well, how do I put it? Yeah, they they maybe have a more of a tendency to kind of sanitize or <laughs> or hide the uh, the kind of less flattering uh, aspects of their corporate politics, whereas Suzuki talks about it quite openly, um, and so do the official histories, which are anonymously written but written by someone with all the access, clearly to the these um archives and so on. So it's quite entertaining to read these histories actually and because studio ghibli has always maintained a relatively small scale considering how famous it is it almost becomes like a a soap opera you read these histories and the same characters recur like miyazaki and takahata and suzuki are always at the heart of things but the same animators are always kind of there on the fringes or you know the, the same script writers um, and you become familiar with the characters i think uh while ghibli's films have been Thoroughly and very well analyzed by some scholars. Um, yeah, just a kind of like straight narrative history of the studio's uh, origins. Yeah, and thirty-five years of existence can still be written. I think there's a lot still to put out there.
1: I find there's this there's this gulf for me between academia. Of course, yeah, as you say, animation studies is a field with lots of great work being done. But when it's something like Ghibli, where the popular audience may never rub up against the academic world there's still so much misinformation out there because there are there's no there are no, very few clear english language sources for some aspects of that history i don't know if you saw the other day there was a viral tweet going around which had connected the dots between topcraft the studio that made go the valley of wind they animated the opening sequence of the thundercats animation series from the 80s and somebody had just tweeted joining the dots saying takahata and miyazaki bought Topcraft <laughs> in 1985 and turned it into ghibli and people people responded saying too long don't read thundercats is a ghibli f- series and, so, and people then popping popping off saying oh i can completely see how it's the exact same thing thundercats and ghibli and it, it suddenly goes really way too far and because they're basing that off maybe Wikipedia, which is an, unverif- you know, an unverified line in Wikipedia or a mistranslated line from a Japanese source, there's still so much out there that even though you say it's very well covered in some areas, there's still so much we don't know, particularly with Takata, I feel, when we were doing this series. Miyazaki has those two big starting points and turning point books where we can refer to his production notes and di- directorial memoranda, but Takata we have so little. It feels like. Yeah,
2: that was actually another reason why I pitched this book. Um, I thought it's not just Grave of the Fireflies that hasn't been written about much. It's, it's Takahata himself. Doing the research for the book, I basically try and try to find everything that's been written about him, about Grave of the Firefly specifically in English. And there were many, many articles, many reviews, many kind of uh, features that kind of sketch the historical backdrop or explain, you know, the autobiographical basis of the film but they kind of repeat the same information over and over again so there's kind of a few fragments of context that are out there in the domain and are being repeated but uh, there's very little that kind of drilled down deeper and yeah there's there's um there's very little on on his other works as well which are a bit less well-known than grave of the Fireflies*. but still considering that he's associated closely with one of the most famous animation studios in the world and that he's such a brilliant filmmaker and that most of his films are accessible I find it surprising that he hasn't been studied more but I think that will change I think his death a couple of years ago re- maybe reminded people of his existence or, or prompted that kind of reevaluation that death can do and um I, I I kind of hear rumblings that there's more research on him now underway that we'll hopefully see soon it's been really
0: nice uh talking to uh, different kind of filmmakers and storytellers for this podcast and the fact that We've had two guests from like kind of Oscar-nominated <laughs> films uh, come and say that they're like underrated. Ghibli highlight is my neighbor's the amateurs. It's just very lovely. Did Tom say that? So that was um, Will Collins, the writer of Wolfwalkers, and um, Domi She who's uh, directing Turning Red for Pixar. But going into this project, Alex, now now that like, once you knew that the book was happening and you had to chronicle this the story of this film, How did your viewing of it change from the first time that you sat down to focus on it, where I imagine you kind of pen in hand, diligently like pausing it every minute, like the true scholar that you are uh, to the the 30th time where it's like Sunday morning hungover thinking, I've got to do it again, just just in case. What is that trajectory for you?
2: Yeah, I did actually watch it hungover once and that's an experience I would wish on no one. Um, (laughs) uh, I think the first thing I'd say is I was worried at the outset that the film would lose its force through the rewatchings, and that eventually I would watch it completely dispassionately, and that that would be a shame, uh, a casualty of the whole book writing process. But actually, actually, to my surprise, that didn't happen. Um, I was still crying by the end, by the thirtieth watch or whatever it was. By that point, there were just certain things, like a little kind of cue on the soundtrack that would just kind of like Pavlovian prompt some tears. (laughs) And it was especially around the um, scene where uh, Setsuko, you have a kind of reel of her happiest moments that's played after she's died. So that's the first thing to say. Um, How did my view of it change? I guess I knew going into it that it was an uncommonly powerful film, but I didn't really know why, really. Uh, I hadn't really tried to figure out what it was about it. And through the process of researching the book, I um, basically realized how, but firstly, how brilliantly the characters are sketched. Uh, I don't mean literally visually sketched, well that too, but I mean how brilliantly they're depicted as people with with the nuance and all the dimensions there. And I'm talking especially about to here because Setsuko being a little child, has less complexity to her, inevitably. She has less morality. She's less compromised. Sato is a more tragic figure. So I guess I got to know Sato more. uh, And I also realized how perfectly the film is structured. Unlike some later Ghibli films in particular, it's very short, very concise, doesn't have a shot out of place. Um, I think Totoro is the same. This is peak disciplined Takahata and disciplined Miyazaki. They're still working in the wake of their TV series days. Throughout the 70s, they've been making series on crazy uh, deadlines. And uh, I think the demands of that experience had taught them to tell stories incredibly concisely and very kind of rigorously. Whereas later in Studio Ghibli's life, when they had bigger budgets and to some extent were able to transcend budgetary and deadline constraints that filmmakers normally have to contend with. The films maybe became a little bit laxer as a result, or at least the the narrative structure. Grave of the Fireflies is just perfectly formed, and I really don't see what scene uh, or shot could be omitted from it. So yeah, it was an understanding of those two things, the sheer craft of the storytelling, which is Takahata's main thing after all. He's a storyteller, he's not a He's not an animator, he's not a graphic artist. And the beauty of the characterization of Tata.
0: It's interesting you mentioned the kind of power of the storytelling because um, my dad watched this film and he couldn't figure out how to turn subtitles on and he does not speak Japanese. <laughs> and he kind of came out of it with the same reaction that you'd expect anyone to have to watch Engrave of the Fireflies for the first time. It, like He said that it, it didn't matter. And it, like we mentioned... Steven Spielberg a lot on this podcast as and I've mentioned him before as a master of kind of of blocking and momentum and that you can watch Raiders with the sound off as Steven Soderbergh proved and put the social network over the soundtrack instead and you still totally know what's going on and I think him watching that in Japanese and still coming out of it with like profoundly moved by it shows like his skill as a director
2: yeah I mean there's, there's very little well there's not much dialogue in the film, and the dialogue that there is is quite concise. This is a war film with some you know serious and sophisticated things to say about war and about how we behave in it, but there's no speech in it really. You'd expect a film like that, especially one that's meant for children as well as adults, would have a character at one point stand and kind of reel off what they've learned from the experience or you know that it would be kind of somehow crystallized in a climactic scene like that. Uh, that doesn't happen in the film it's just people talking and saying quite banal things to each other all the way through so maybe that's a reason why your dad could um follow it even without the sound
0: well it's also in just like it's just minor gestures like that's how he brings the character out of it and that's where the emotion comes from not from some like hugely imaginative crazy fantastical thing it's just the 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 food and the lack thereof and just the the, the sight of a child and that that rock tumbling around in her mouth and that's that's it, and that's going to break your heart, whatever language you speak.
1: Alex, this this suggests another th- question that we wrestle with on this podcast, and that's language in general. And I, I love your particular route through this, watching the films, as you say, with French subtitles that may have come through multiple intermediate languages, then learning Japanese, and now translating Japanese back into English. Do you have what is your take on this? The whole. You need to see it in the original language. You need to understand the original language. Subs always over dubs. What's your take on all this?
2: I kind of sit on the fence on the whole sub versus dub debate in general. I don't. I I always watch with subs, um, or it, you know, if it's um, if it's Japanese, um, yeah, with or without subs. In the case of Grave of the Fireflies, I watched it with subs because I thought it was important to see how it's been translated, and um, for the sake of my book. In this case, in particular, Grave of the Fireflies, I. I don't think people should watch the dub uh, unless they really feel they have to. And the reason is that more than pretty much any other film, it it depends for its power on the plausibility of the characters and therefore on the performances, the voice actors. And Takahata and his team went out of their way to cast actors who are the same age as the children they play, which is unusual. Conventionally, uh, he would have found adults who would then pretend to be children which is what you hear in many anime animated productions, uh, including Ghibli productions and other Ghibli productions. The result of that is Setsuko in particular who's a four-year-old girl, and it's not easy to sound four years old if you're an adult. She is so vivid in the Japanese original. She's just so real. Um, So is Sata. In the English dubs, they didn't preserve that. They cast adults. Uh, In fact, there are two dubs of Grave of the Fireflies. In one of them, the... uh, actor who voices Setsuko. She was in her 60s (laughs) at the time. And, you know, you can hear it. I've actually never watched either of those dubs all the way through because I find it so so painful. It really just completely undercuts the force of the film, I think. So I think on this one, I'd get on my high horse and say, sub, overdub, (laughs) always. In general, uh, yeah, I mean, it's up to what people prefer and what they think is right for them. Um, The... Subtitling and the dubbing for Ghibli films is generally quite good, like accurate and uh, well-performed as well. The Grave of the Fireflies ex- exceptionally um, was never distributed by Disney uh, for arcane rights reasons. And so never, uh, Disney never um, recorded a dub for it. And I think that means that the dubs that there are for uh, Grave of the Fireflies, but maybe the um, production value, quality control is slightly lower as well. And there are there are no like Hollywood voices. That's another thing that Disney always did. But *Rope the Fireflies* doesn't have.
1: Yeah, I, I think of um, other Ghibli films with characters of a similar age. And you look at the, the Disney dub of *Totoro*, where it's the Fanning sisters, Dakota and Elle, who were similar age to the characters, but they they are Hollywood voices. Hollywood has a tradition of child actors that has an association with us through other Disney. Uh, animations, actual Disney animations, rather than dubs. But in this case, I love the little um, trivia tidbit you have in the book where the voice actor for Setsuko in the original is, was p- potentially the youngest anime voice actor of all time to that point in Japan.
2: <laughs> yeah, but she was billed as that, yeah. Uh, I I wasn't able to verify that myself, but I mean, it's probable, yeah. No one else really had done that. and yeah. um, It also meant that they had to record her before... Uh, the animation, so they kind of reverse the process. In the anime industry, often you would have the animation more or less complete, and then the voice uh, artists would come into the studio and dub in sync with what they see. Uh, but a girl who's five—she was five—the actress who plays it can't do that. And on top of that, they were worried that her voice would change um, in the interim if they waited for the animation to be done first. They thought she was just right as she was then, so they got her to record bulk of her lines. Uh, ahead of production and then that created an extra advantage which is that the animators were able to kind of basically animate in line with her performance they could draw inspiration from her little idiosyncrasies when you know, giving Setsuko visual life yeah and and that's why it's, it's just like she's so vivid even though she's less complex than Theta and in many ways less interesting and not really the focus of the film, not really the moral heart of the film. She's just so alive and so real that um, her death is devastating. And that's why the film works so well.
0: And in all your kind of research in terms of the craft of this film, that's another area that Michael and I, uh, although we can maybe talk and write about films, we're, we're not artists ourselves going out uh, with the ability to draw or animate. Was there any learnings that you got from like how the actual film was made that uh, kind of shaped your interest in it?
2: Well, for a long time, I had this idea that Takahata couldn't draw at all. That's what he often said about himself, kind of more out of modesty than anything. Um, And that's the received idea in, in discussion of Takahata. And... Then kind of with time, a bit before I started on this project, I kind of heard that he did sometimes draw, but I didn't really know what that meant. And then when I got down to the research for this book, I actually saw what that meant, which is um, that he drew kind of thumbnail storyboards. He wasn't a brilliant draftsman, like he couldn't draw full-on layouts or, you know, he couldn't animate, but he had a very keen sense of composition and blocking. And that was expressed in his little thumbnail, mini storyboards, which were just kind of like dashed off very roughly on the script that he'd written as far as I could see, and maybe also elsewhere. And um, some of these were shown in an exhibition of his work in Tokyo that was posthumous. It was a, it, it happened in Japan a couple of years ago. And if you get the catalog to that exhibition, you'll see all this um, material that Takahata has drawn. So I learned that he did that, and that, that kind of slightly complicated my um, understanding of him as a filmmaker. I realized that he had more visual input than I'd initially thought. He then passed those sketches, you know, those thumbnails, onto trained storyboard artists who turned them into fully-fledged storyboards and so on. So there was that. And then the other thing that really surprised me was that the film was unfinished when it came out in cinemas, which I did not know until I started reading these histories. And uh, the fact is that they just ran out of time. The film was produced incredibly quickly by modern Ghibli standards or by Hollywood standards. It was turned around in, from initial conception to release, it was just over a year and a half. And the production itself, by which I mean the animation, um, took like nine months, I think, or 10 months. I can't remember exactly, less than a year. That's that's fast. (laughs) Like I said, Miyazaki and Takahata and and all their colleagues were trained in the TV series world, which was just in Japan, especially just like unremittingly pressurized. And so they were used to working fast. But in this case of Grave of the Fireflies, it just didn't quite work out. And they just didn't manage to finish uh, production before release. So the film came out in Japanese cinemas with a few uncolored scenes, just black and white. (laughs) Um, and according to, and then they carried on working on it after release and eventually put out uh, print prints with the finished version. But Toshio um, Suzuki, in his uh, recollection, says that a lot of people in the audience apparently just thought that the black and white unfinished scenes were a stylistic choice.
0: <laughs> it's like the reverse Schindler's List.
2: Yeah, <laughs> yeah exactly. But it's just a, quite a random scene. It's the one where Sator's being beaten for having tried to steal some vegetables. Uh, that that one was black and white, and why that should be black and white and not the others, I don't know. Uh, maybe because it's at night time. But yeah. Um, so so yeah, the the, the panic um, that kind of seized the team as they neared the finish line, but realized that the finish line was um, a bit too close, <laughs> Was is kind of palpable in all these reports, and also I, I, I got magazine reports from the great Japanese anime magazine, Animage, uh, from the time, from 86, 87, 88, when the production was in full swing, and the reporters are kind of verifying this, like reporters are visiting the studio and reporting back that the Totoro side seems fine and happy and ticking along, and the fireflies team seems pretty down <laughs> there's like a photo of a, a notice um that's been pinned up on the door i think on the entrance to the Grave of firefly studio with some kind of euphemistic sentence saying something like we very much appreciate our colleagues uh acceptance of the need to work through the new year period without taking any holidays uh let's all keep trying our best till the end or <laughs> something like that <laughs> and you have this real sense of it like all going pear-shaped but yeah anyway that's all forgotten in in time now isn't it because we've got the finished version and and no one really thinks about this panic but I thought it was interesting to bring up because it kind of presages what would happen later in Ghibli's life when Takahata would be indulged with more time and more money and would end up taking years and years to finish a
0: film. And how is spending this much time with Fireflies kind of reshapes your thoughts on the breadth of Takata's work.
2: Like I said, it, it made me appreciate the sheer craft of his storytelling. It also kind of made me, because I rewatched all his other films as part of my research, and um, I started to see more clearly a common thread that runs through them, which is this kind of reflection on, the idea of community and what it means to be part of a group—that ultimately is in every single one of his films—and what that community is, how that's expressed, varies from film to film. And on the smallest scale, you've got my neighbours the Yamadas, where they're all—they're they're part of—it's a close-knit family, a dysfunctional family, but a close-knit one—and and they all draw meaning from their place within that family and their relations with each other. And on the biggest scale, you've got. The tale of the princess kaguya which is a kind of table on the meaning of being on earth surrounded by people kaguya the princess comes from you know outer space (laughs) the moon um, and returns to it at the end but in the interim she has this kind of condensed experience of human society and when she comes to leave it at the end she finds it very painful and she kind of i guess she realizes what the yeah the, the meaning she's derived from being surrounded by these people for her whole short life. And um, Grave of the Fireflies is about that too. But there is a kind of mirror image. Uh, the characters actually abandon society. They turn their backs on it. And you could say with good reason. It d- depends on how you see the kind of shifting complex morality of the characters in the film. But it goes badly for them. They leave the safety net as a society. They, they aspire to a kind of Freedom, a kind of uh, self sufficient life as two children, and it doesn't work out. So I think, yeah, watching it in the context of all his films, watching them all in a row like that, and his series as well, made me appreciate that kind of auteur streak that runs through his filmmaking. Uh, I, I think we can call him an auteur. I don't hesitate to use that word. I think in his case, that's appropriate. And yeah, I came to realize that.
1: You know, we love a ranking on this podcast. So you've just revisited all of his Ghibli features. And as part of making the book, would you
2: dare rank them? I would in my own head, <laughs> privately. <laughs> do I dare say it? Um, <laughs> I think I think grave of the Fireflies is for me his best film. Full stop, because it's so tightly constructed. Yeah, I think it's that. It, it occurred to me while we were while I was watching the film that we never learn the names of any of the characters except Satan and Setsuko, and that's kind of indicative of how closely focused the story is around them. Uh, really, just kind of like there's no subplots, there's no extraneous material. That's my favorite. And then Kaguya and My Neighbors the Amadas, are probably the next two joint. Can I do that? <laughs> I love the the visual style in both of them, which kind of starts out in Yamadas and then is refined in Kaguya. I find them like kind of of a piece with each other like I was saying earlier the way they reflect on what it means to be surrounded by people uh, that you love without necessarily always liking or being comfortable with but Yamada's is a comic take on it and Kaguya is a tragic take on it Only Yesterday is Sublime as well that probably comes next and I love the music in it and then Pompoko Comes last. Pompoco is one I've never really been moved by, although I find it really interesting. Pompoco has a structure all of its own, which is kind of cyclical, like with the seasons, right? The same things repeat themselves over and over in the film. And I find that interesting and unusual as a structure for a story, but I also find it a bit wearying after a while, and it's it's quite a long film, so it kind of throws in relief, I think, for me the qualities of Fireflies as being much tighter and simpler and shorter. So that's the ranking. Are you okay with that? <laughs> How does it match up with the leaderboard? Jake,
1: you and I slightly disagree in terms of the ordering of Takata films. I think you're more of an Only Yesterday fan than I am. That broadly lines up with with what what we well how we ranked them way back when
0: yeah i think there's some maybe fluctuations in the middle but um the bookends are about right between us all absolutely well
1: you mentioned the the leaderboard and jacob's ladder there because you we got to the end of the ghibli catalog when we started this podcast back in 2018 we thought 20 odd films god we'll never get to the end of those and then we did and since then, you know, we've done these mini-series, Satoshi Kon, we've done Cartoon Saloon, and now we ask, whenever we have guests on the show, we ask them, where where could we go next? And Alex, you're an animation expert, so you more than anyone should be able to point us into in a direction that we could go in. Where Who could we cover next?
2: Yeah, I mean, now that... Because for a while you were basically within the anime world, but then with Cartoon Saloon, you kind of branched out beyond that, so that opens up a whole new world of yeah, non-Japanese stuff. Uh, this is maybe quite niche, uh, but I would like to see a mini series on the influences on Miyazaki and Takahata. Those the kind of totemic, that canon of totemic films of world animation that they always go back to in their discussions about their craft and so on. The films of Yuri Norstein, there's The Man Who Planted Trees by Frederick Beck, there's The Snow Queen by Le, Le-, Le-, Le- there's a few others. Uh, oh, yeah, the Shepherdess and the Chimney Sweep, um, The King and the Mockingbird, that film, by Paul Grimo. There's not many of them. There's just like a, a half dozen films that the two of them always talk about and come back to. I would love to hear a mini series on that, but that is niche. But on the flip side, because most of those are short films, they're quite accessible. <laughs> so like listeners don't need to go further than Google in order to find them uh, or YouTube. Yeah. So I would like to hear a on that. Also, in the Japanese context, I like Masaki Yuasa, but he's quite off-brand, I guess. His, his filmmaking is very different from Ghibli, so maybe a bit too far.
1: He's been mentioned a few times, and in terms of Yuasa, there are there are a couple of his films where he moves towards a Miyazaki-type style, I think.
2: Lou Over the World is like a, almost like a parody of Ponyo.
1: It is, yeah. And I, I've definitely posted this on Twitter before, but there's a freeze frame where he, it looks like it's uh, characters from Ponyo in the in the sort of tsunami sequence, uh, which must be a, a, a nod. Uh, but that, that's a really good suggestion for the Ghibli influences. Um, I'll take any uh, opportunity to show off my hipster dad credentials. I've been showing uh, Ivo, the, my two-year-old um, hedgehog in the fog, uh, quite a lot. You know, uh, he, of course, he can't read the subtitles, but that's another perfect sort of short film where you can just watch it as visuals, and it's just so beautiful and beguiling as a film. And he and the, as as a former Russian language student, I love the fact that he thinks that the Hedgehog's name is Yojik, which is Hedgehog in Russian, so he now knows Russian as a two-year-old. <laughs> well on my way to being that awful dad.
2: <laughs> yeah, that's one way of doing it. That's, i hadn't thought of that. It's also um, there's a Bjork video that copies Hedgehog in the Fog. I can't remember which one it is. Um, I think it might be Human Behaviour, maybe. There's one that definitely is indebted to North Star. His films are very influential across the board. It's not just Miyazaki and Takahata. So there's a lot to talk about there. So yeah, that's my humble request.
1: That's a strong but niche request. We'll add that to the board. <laughs> Alex, thank you so much for talking with us today. Congratulations on the book. I I, I wish you nothing but the best with it. Thank you. Thank you so much to Alex for joining us to talk about Grey the Fireflies and the process behind writing his book. Always a pleasure to hear from him. Listeners, if you like the sound of his voice, you can hear it on previous episodes. He was one of our guests for the British Museum live episodes, talking about the wind rises, as well as he sent in a wonderful little audio postcard during our first lockdown, talking about turning 30. Um, in, in isolation so go back and listen to those for more Alex but definitely
0: buy his book as well it's such a great addition to any Ghibli shelf and if you want to keep up with everything that Alex is doing he's on Twitter at DoodyDoc and we're over there as well Michael you're there at Michael J. Leader and Jake
1: you're on there at Jake H. Cunningham and Tech in general is at Tech, and you can email us at Ghibli at com.
0: Bibliothèque is a Little Dot Studios production. Our artwork is by Sophie Moe, our music is by Anthony Ying, and James Payne is our editor. The show is produced by Michael Leader, Jake Cunningham, Harold McShill, and Steph Watts.
2: Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quinns.